God's people, wherever they are, say together, amen, amen. Well, I hope that that was taking that kind of time here, sort of a, an unplanned few moments of prayer was good for your soul. I needed it. Like I said, if, if you didn't need it, I did. And at least now I probably am ready to preach. So, so if nothing else, that was for me, but I hope that God was able to use it to encourage and to hearten you as well. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and, and if not, I hope you're in a place where you can hunt one down very, uh, very quickly. I want you to to meet me once again today, back in James chapter 2. Last Sunday, we, we returned to our, our temporarily paused study in the book of James, where, as you'll see by that visual on the screen, our theme throughout it has been, is, will continue to be a theme of flourishing. What does it mean to flourish as a follower of Jesus Christ in whatever circumstances we are in? And and uh, while no single word can, can, of course, summarize an entire book in God's Word, however long or short it may be, and there are many other ways we could look at the book of James, I am so thankful that before any of us knew any of what we're dealing with in life and in our world today came our way, that God knew we were going to need to talk about flourishing and, and to realize that, that faith can flourish in hardship. And in fact, sometimes our faith flourishes most rapidly and fully in hardship. We, we, we dig our roots down deeper, which of course then allows us to grow up to maturity. So we're in James chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up today. Actually, we're just going to read four verses of Scripture. And, and I'll just tell you, as I was getting ready for the passage uh, this week, or as I was getting preparing to come in and start working on the message, I thought, oh good, just four verses. Because next week's a really big passage. It's the, if you've read James, it's all about faith and works and salvation. And, and it's really one of the, the doctrinal, one of the more doctrinally thorny passages in James. And I thought, good, four verses, that'll be a nice little on-ramp to next Sunday. And so, was I so wrong? Was I so wrong? Because in these four verses, there is enough to keep us busy for a while. And, uh, and that doesn't mean we're gonna, it's going to keep us busy longer than usual, but it does mean that there is some, some interesting and some challenging territory for us to cover in God's Word this morning. But don't shut off your TV. Don't, don't, don't shut off your screen. I think, as I have found, as I have labored through these four verses this week, that, that I needed this. And, and I'm just going to go out on a limb as your brother and someone who loves you very much to say you need this too if you're a follower of Jesus. We need to hear what the Word of God says. So I'm going to begin reading this morning in James chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to read all the way to verse 13, where this is what the Word of God says. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he, that is God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you were to take this passage that we just read in isolation, without any regard for the, the context of what comes before or what follows after, you might very well assume, looking at these four verses alone, that this is a text written for unbelievers, that it was written to those who don't know Jesus Christ, what with its evident emphasis on sin and guilt and merciless judgment. But I want you to know this morning as we begin that if you did that, you'd be wrong. 
if you assume these were verses for unbelievers, since what James wrote here is a continuation of everything we looked at last Sunday in the first nine verses of James chapter 2, which if you were with us, you should remember, and if you weren't, you can easily look at those verses and see were clearly written for genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what I want us to understand as we begin this morning is that what we're about to dig into here is not a call for unbelievers to repent. It is a call for Christians to watch our step. It's a call for Christians to watch our step. And I'll also say this right from the outset. It's complicated. (laughs) What we're going to look at this morning in God's Word is complicated because what I believe He wants to to teach us, what He wants us to grasp this morning, it, it is, as I already alluded to, some fairly heavy stuff. And, and, and for that reason, what it's going to require is, is an attentive mind. It's going to require and ask of all of us a teachable spirit and the resolve to follow wherever the Lord, in His direction, leads our hearts. Now, with that said, in order to help, help clear some of the debris from the path, some of the, the, maybe some of the doctrinal or theological or biblical questions that we could get hung up on that would distract us from the main point. Let me, just, let me just offer you very quickly three or four things just to, like I said, sort of clear the debris from the path because it's going to be challenging enough, but things we don't want to get hung up on, but yet nevertheless are true. Very quickly, here they are. They'll be on the screen if you want to take note of them. Number one, as believers, it is absolutely clear we are not objects of God's wrath. And and I'm going to give you some scriptures with each of these. I'm not going to read them. You can jot them down if you want to look them up for yourself. But as believers, the Bible is absolutely clear. We are not objects of God's wrath. We've been delivered from it. Secondly, as such, we need not fear messing up spiritually, messing up and, and incurring God's anger all over again. God is not angry with his people. And, and we need to understand that as well. As such, our rationale for obeying God, for living a life of holy obedience, is not guilt. Now, that's the easy thing to to motivate one another with. Lots and lots of preachers like to use guilt to motivate people to be good. And, and, And yet, that is an insufficient, in fact, I believe it is a thoroughly unbiblical, unchrist like motivation to live a life of obedience. Our rationale to obey God, because we're not under wrath, and we we need not fear incurring his anger toward us. Our rationale to obey is not guilt, but gratitude. Gratitude for the sacrifice of Christ. I will live for him because he died for me. Now with that said, and here's the the final sort of word of introduction that will help us jump into the main theme of the message. Even so, (laughs) all those things being true, Jesus has called us to live lives of radical holiness. Not partial holiness, not easygoing holiness, radical, holy obedience to Him. Luke 9.23 is one of three different places in the New Testament. Jesus says, listen, you want to come after me? Come after me, but you're going to have to take up your cross daily. It requires obedience. Meaning, in other words, as believers, we do in fact have an obligation to watch our step, to pay attention to the way we live. And that is, the reason I take the time to spell that out, is that that is the spirit and that is the framework in which we're going to approach what James says to us in these four verses in today's passage. And so to that end, there are four things I want you to see. Four verses, four points. 
which I'm going to present to you in the vein of four motivations, four motivating facts or realities to spur us, to ignite us, to compel us to watch our spiritual step, to live lives of joyful, radical, holy obedience for Jesus. And those four things are as follows. Number one, the first thing James points us to, the first motivation to, as believers, watch our spiritual step is he tells us or reminds us of God's exacting standard, that the Lord in his word has given us a truly exacting standard. Now, when verse 10 says, whoever keeps, look at your Bible, verse 10, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all, I would suggest to you that's exhibit A for what I meant when I said it's easy to mistake this or see this as a text for unbelievers. After all, what do we know as Christians? What have we been taught? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has done wrong. And, and that it's not the frequency of our sin, but the mere fact of our sin that is enough to separate us from God. In fact, has separated us from Him in life and will, if not remedied, separate us eternally from Him in death. What the, we know that the message of the Bible is this. One sin is enough to condemn us for all eternity. And that seems to be what James is alluding to here. And, and that is true, but it's not his point. That is not James's point. Because you see, when verse 10, look at it again, says this, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Now, now remember, he's writing to Christians, and you can't look at the context and argue it any other way. He's writing to believers, and yet he's saying something like this to us. Well, he's saying a lot in this verse, but one of the things I believe he's subtly trying to remind us is that, yes, there is a law, and every law has a lawgiver, right? If there's a law, there must be a lawgiver. And, and the giver of the law that he's speaking of here, that he wants us to be mindful of, is, of course, God. And here's what he wants us to know about our divine lawgiver, who has given us his law. The message of verse 10 is this, that God views all of his decrees about sin and righteousness, about holiness and disobedience, and everything that he says about what it means to live for him, that God views his law, as Kent Hughes puts it, quote, as, one, as, as a seamless garment, which when ripped in one place, tears the whole thing. God's law, although there are laws plural, he views it as one collective whole. And when you sin in one way, you violate the whole thing. And that's true for us, even as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we stumble, okay, that's what he said in verse 10, whoever stumbles in one point, when we as believers stumble, say we only stumble in one way, right, as if, right, as if we, we just have one sin problem, but just imagine that even that was the case. What James is saying in verse 10 is this, is that, that however big or small the transgression appears to us, it always does damage to the heart of God, of our Father. It, it always harms the intimacy of our relationship with Him. It's sin, even though we're saved and even though we're not under wrath, sin is still offensive and hurtful to the heart of God. And He wants us to think about that. That it doesn't matter which sin we commit. We stumble in one point, we're guilty of lawlessness, of disobedience. Even when there are sins that nobody else sees. Even when there are sins that no one else can detect. And I don't know what you call that, but I call that an exacting standard. 
the recognition that, that all of my sin is harmful to my relationship with God. And I believe that, that in its own right, it, it's, it's motivation enough to watch my spiritual step, to say, you know, I, I do want to walk in radical obedience because he's my father. And I, and I serve him out of, out of gratitude and grace, not out of guilt. And the last thing I want to do is hurt the heart of my father and my fellowship with him. So the first thing he gives us is an exacting standard, and it's high, and it's holy, and it's challenging, but buckle up, because he's just getting started. <laughs> because as we move from verse 10 to verse 11, the second thing we see, the second motivation that James offers to us here to watch our spiritual step as followers of Jesus, and really, verses 10 and 11, they, 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 they overlap in many ways, so you're going to hear that as I, as I dig into it, but he moves from this exacting standard to then give a second, giving us, secondly, a stunning revelation. A stunning revelation, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, on its face, I think we'd all agree that adultery and murder are, are big sins, Right? I mean, they both made God's top 10 back in the day, and, 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 and they continue to be a big deal. And, and I think even godless people, even those who have nothing, no interest at all in Jesus Christ, would, it, would it, at, at bare minimum, they'd acknowledge that at least in terms of real-life consequences, adultery and murder are a whole lot more consequential than swiping a Twix bar from the checkout line at Walmart. And, and that's how we look at sin, as big sins and small sins, and, and, and yes, in terms of real-life consequences and, and damage, that can be so. But what do we just see in verse 10? Sin is sin. In its purest sense, sin is sin. Whether you take someone's life, whether you steal someone's wife, or going back to verses 1 through 9, you play favorites at church. Whatever it is, they all make us transgressors of the law. And, and by bringing that to our attention, one of the things that shows, at least shows me, is that James was, a, was an attentive student of his big brother's teaching. Jesus was his half-brother, his older brother. And James paid attention. Because if you've read the Gospels, you probably have know, noticed, maybe you've been told, that anytime Jesus talked about an Old Testament law, anytime he made reference to one of the Ten Commandments, what did he always do? He always elevated its intent. And he always amplified its application by saying, listen, the sins of the body and the mouth and the hand, they all started in here, in the heart. You can go to Matthew 5. In fact, very quickly, just do that, just for a sample of what he said. In Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, in verses 21 and 22, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, Everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, is guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, is guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Verse 27, you have heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already done so in his heart. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. So as believers, we can't say it's no big deal if nobody gets hurt. If nobody else knows. Because whenever we sin, what do we see? Somebody always gets hurt. The Lord is hurt. And I don't mean that in some sort of trivial, trite, 
sing-songy sort of way. I mean, it is, it is offensive to him. And it's harmful to us. You know, we can call ourselves Bible-believing Christians, and that's a, that's a phrase you hear in our church and a church like ours a lot. We are Bible-believing Christians. But Warren Wearsby points out very pointedly, very soberly, and very accurately, we only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. We only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. In other words, there's no such thing as a small sin. That's the, the stunning revelation. I want to grade on the curve. I want to, I want to go by, by magnitude and say there's some big and some small. No, they're all big. <laughs> all sins are big because they're all harmful and do damage. The stunning revelation is there's no such thing as small sin. All sin is sin, and, and none of it is small. And, and again, while that revelation shouldn't crush us, while it shouldn't ruin us, it should stun us into watching our step and let the Holy Spirit of God search our hearts for the sins we've grown comfortable excusing. Let the Holy Spirit of God search my heart for the sins that I've grown comfortable excusing. Because they're not small. They all are dangerous. I need to watch my step. And you need to watch yours. That's some heavy stuff. There's an exacting standard. All sin is sin. There's a stunning revelation. None of them are small. So what do we do? Well, I told you a little bit earlier that as much as that would lead us in a logical sense, in a human reasoning sense to say, well, then let that guilt motivate you to be good. <laughs> and, and like I said, a lot of us have lived that way and practiced that way. We may even live that way today that, you know, we go from one guilt hit to another. We get our fix and it motivates us to be good and then we screw up and we let the guilt. But listen, guilt can only carry you to the next sin. And, and, and then you got to start all over again. And, and guilt is not a sustaining, it's certainly not a healthy motivation to live in radical obedience to Christ. So what does James do in verse 12? Well, he gives us the third thing I want you to see here. And here's where the, the clouds begin to part a little bit and the sun starts coming back out, okay? When he gives us what I call a surprising incentive. When he offers us, in verse 12, a surprising incentive. So speak, James 2.12 and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, to many of us, at least perhaps at first reading, and I really had to chew on this myself as well, the terms law and liberty seem contradictory. They don't seem to, to complement or mesh together really well. Why? Because most of us equate law with rules and restrictions, and most of us equate liberty with freedom and self-fulfillment. Say, how do those two things go together? How is there a, a law of liberty? And as I thought about the conflict that that created in my mind, I thought, well, I thought for one thing, I thought it shows how much politics has tainted everything, that, that I can't put these two concepts together. But much more than that, at a spiritual level, when we can't reconcile law and liberty, in part it exposes how easy it is to forget our Bibles and what our Bibles say about us. Because here's what our Bibles say about us. They say that you, everybody take your pointer finger and say, they say it's that me. It's talking about me, all right? It's talking about you. The Bible says that you were created for the glory of God. You were not created to find the best version of yourself. You're not created to, to go out and, you know, light a candle and change the world. You were created for the glory of God. And, and that that is the most fulfilling way to live, to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. 
And, and for me, I know the fact that that doesn't excite me, that doesn't like just fire my crank every time I, you know, crank me and, and fire me up every time I, I hear it, shows how dull spiritually I can be. But, but we're created for the glory of God, to live with Him and for Him and, and share his, his glory with others. But what's the problem? Well, the Bible goes on to say that thanks to the fall, I was also born enslaved to sin. The Bible over and over uses the, the language of, of prison and shackling and slavery to talk about sin. I'm created for God's glory, but I'm in bondage to sin. And, and what the Bible also says about that bondage is I can't get out of it. There's nothing I can do. I can't do anything for you, and you can't do anything for me to get out. The only way to get set free is to come to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Scott led us this morning in our time of communion, and trust that his death and resurrection were all that was necessary to free me from the bondage of sin forever. I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am set free and saved. In other words, trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior frees you to fulfill the reason you were created in the first place. Trusting Christ as Savior frees us up, emancipates us to fulfill the reason we were created, which is to glorify God in every dimension of our lives. That's what Jesus came to do. And that is what James 2.12 means when it says, So, therefore speak and therefore act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. A law that is meant to and designed by its very origin intent to set you free, to live what, the way you were created to live, that you don't know till you try and you can only try by faith, but to live for the glory of God. In other words, let me put this in language we can understand. What, what James is saying here is that as such, even though there is this exacting standard, and even though we've seen this stunning revelation, you do not, say, I do not. I do not, you do not have to go through life tied up in knots, all obsessed and, and frustrated, worried about which sin you're going to stumble into next, which wrong path you're going to tumble down, which way you're going to upset God next and incur his anger and his judgment James is saying to us here, and there's a whole lot of other scripture we could go to that we don't have time to go to, but the message is this. You are not to live for Jesus Christ. Radical obedience to the Lord Jesus is not a matter of going through life obsessed with the don'ts. Don't do this. Thou shalt not do that. Stay away from here. Don't go there. Now, there are a lot of don'ts in the Bible, and, and James has already pointed a couple of them out here. But does that sound like liberty to you? No. The law of liberty, the law of liberty that I have been set free to, to fulfill the purpose for which I was created, means I fix my eyes on Christ, who came, and we saw this last week in Luke chapter 4, the first words out of his mouth at his first public appearance were this, I came to proclaim liberty to the captive, freedom to the poor. He came to bring liberty, so we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, motivated, and this is going to lead us into our fourth and final point here in just a couple of minutes, but don't go there yet, but motivated. Here's the surprising incentive. He says you're going to be judged by the law 
of liberty. And what the law of liberty, as we'll get into verse 13, is going to show us, the surprising incentive is this, that on judgment day, on the day of judgment, when our lives are examined by the Lord, He will inexplicably, lavishly, mercifully pour out on you reward for every joyful act of obedience, for choosing to walk with Him. Everything you do in your life as a believer, in keeping with the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, every single one of them, he says, is going to be rewarded. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it'll feel, and I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I know he's promised reward. And those who put their hope in the Lord are never disappointed. He has promised reward. So simply put, what I'm saying is this, the surprising incentive for radical obedience is reward eternal reward from our heavenly Father for radical personal obedience to Christ, for speaking and acting according to the law of liberty, going through life not obsessed by the don'ts, but fixing my eyes on Jesus and doing what he calls me to do. So we've got number one. We've got this exacting standard. All sin is sin. And, and as such, secondly, this, this stunning revelation, all of it is harmful and, and dangerous, yet even so, the incentive to live for Christ rather than indulge in and embrace sin is that he has promised a reward to those who faithfully serve and seek him. And I got to tell you this morning, I would love to stop right there, okay? I'd love to go point three, big idea, but we're not done with the passage yet. So there's one more thing we've got to see here. One more thing James gives us, and it's this in verse 13, having mentioned to us, having pointed us to this surprising incentive of the law of liberty, he then closes this section with a sober warning. He brings it back around to a sober warning. Which is, as I see it, brings us around today to today's most perplexing verse. If indeed this was written for Christians. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Wait! Wait, if you're paying attention, I can almost hear you say, I told you at the beginning of the message that we are no longer, as believers, under God's judgment. We're not objects of wrath. We don't have to fear His anger. I said that, that, that there's no judgment and condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet here, I, I'm still trying to tell you this is for believers, and he's saying that judgment is going to be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy, the believer presumably, and mercy triumphs over judgment. I started the message by saying believers are not under judgment, and that's true. But let me ask you a question, and this is where we have to, we've got to really slow down and think this through biblically. We are not under ultimate judgment, wrath, or condemnation. That is true. But if that is all that is true, I trusted Jesus and I'm going to heaven. If that's all that's true, why bother with radical obedience? Why say no to sin and yes to Jesus? Why go to the effort of living for God's glory? Frankly, I look around and those who really live for God's glory seem to suffer for it quite a bit. Let me put it again in terms that sort of get dirt under the fingernails and bring it down to real life. What, is it, what difference does it make? 
if, if, if I'm not under wrath, I'm not under judgment, and that's true, then what difference does it make if I fritter my entire life away staring at screens or I step out of my comfort zone and serve the poor? What difference does it make if I sleep around or honor my marriage vows till death do us part? What difference does it make whether the words that come out of my mouth or out of my fingers are used to profane or to edify? What difference does it make? I'm going to heaven. I'm not under judgment. See what's going on here? See the, maybe the, the question, the tension. What difference does it make? Why does it matter? Well, James is trying to tell us why it matters. And the reason it matters is this, is because in the afterlife, two rounds of judgment await. Now, one of them, as Christians, we, we need not fear whatsoever. It's called the great white throne judgment. It's spoken of in the book of Revelation. And that is the time at the end of human history when everyone who in this life refused Jesus Christ is granted their wish eternally. Separation from him forever. I don't have to fear that. Neither do you if you've trusted Jesus Christ. In fact, I think there's evidence to say we would even be there for that. I think you could argue that case looking at the Scripture. But the other is called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And, and that is a, a time at the end of human history when each and every believer's life is going to be appraised by the Lord himself. Not, not comparing me against you and us against somebody else and and, you know, one believer to another. It's, it's not that kind of comparison. But, but it's a time of assessment and revelation of what each of us did with the time, gifts, talents, resources, and opportunities God gave us in the time that we knew Him. Whether you trusted him in the final months or years of your life, or you walk with him from a little child. God has given each of us our own unique blend of, of time and resources and gifts and abilities and opportunities. And, and he's going to look and say, let's take a look at what you did with what I gave you. Now, he's still our, God is still our Heavenly Father. Jesus is still our, our loving big brother. But, but he's going to look at our lives. And, and 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 make it clear. Paul talks about this. When he writes to the Corinthian church, he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, he says, me and my traveling buddies, my missionary companions, this is our ambition, whether we're home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his or her deeds in the body, according to what they have done, whether good or bad. And that is what James is referring to in verse 13, the judgment seat of Christ. Where I will stand, and so will you. And the message here is that one of the things that is going to interest Jesus most on that day is how we exercised mercy. Whether mercy was a mark of our life as a believer. That's what he says, isn't it? Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. He's going to be looking at my life for evidence of mercy. What does that mean? Well, does it mean that I was willing to, and I in fact did, forgive and love and pray for my enemies? Does it mean that given the chance to lash back or hold my tongue, 
I, I choose not to take my own revenge or mete it out, but, but leave it as I'm supposed to, to the Lord? Does it mean I was a man or woman or young person who, who did what I could to relieve the suffering of others? Was I the kind of person who served Jesus and, and did so with a measure of sacrifice? Listen, here's the thing. If so, if that's the direction of your life, nobody's perfect, I get it, right? Nobody's going to get this right. But, but if when we get it wrong, we're willing to confess and repent, and we make this the direction of our life, I am trending as I move toward maturity, I'm growing in mercy, then listen to me, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a joyful day. He's going to reward you. And it's not like he's going to, well, all right, I guess. It, all right. He will joyfully, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But if my life is marked by a rigid spirit, by, by a critical tongue, by this unspoken insistence that you earn my smile, if that's the mark of the life of a believer, this day will be somber. I'm not going to go there. Go read on your own. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. You'll see it. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. This judgment will be sorrowful. Still going to heaven. But but absent the reward that could have been yours as a believer. And, and James would not be doing his job if he didn't give us this warning, this sober warning that our way of life matters, that we must watch our step in radical obedience to him. Is the mark of mercy evident in my life? In 1942, there were several, at, at really one of the darker moments of the Second World War, there were several thousand allied, mostly European, British, Scottish servicemen being held in a prisoner of war camp, several thousand of them along the River Kwai in what is today the, the nation of Thailand. And at this particular point in 1942, that prisoner of war camp was a filth-ridden, rodent-infested mess. And, and not only was it located in the jungle, but the law of the jungle prevailed, despite the fact that all these captive POW servicemen uh, had a common enemy, their captor. The, the fact of the matter is they were living in the jungle by the law of the jungle, every man for himself. There was no sense of camaraderie. There was no sense of, of unity. There was no sense of serving and helping one another. It was live or die, and, and, and it's up to you which, which one happens. But a year later, all of that had changed. A year later, all of that had changed. And, and it was evidenced by the fact that, that in that 12 or so month span of time, that the entire campground, though they were still prisoner and being brutally treated and starved by their captor, the, the campground had been cleaned. Their barracks, the huts they stayed in, had been rebuilt. The, the beds had been debugged. As, as much as possible, the rodents had been driven away. And on Christmas morning, more than 2,000 of those prisoners gathered together in one place to worship the Lord. Christmas Day, 1943. And, and according to Ernest Gordon, uh, one of the prisoners who, who was there and lived to tell the story, what changed everything in that River Kwai prison camp was that during that year, one starving prisoner gave his last bite of food to another. And the one who received it lived, and the one who gave it away almost immediately died. And, 
And when that happened, that obviously got some people's attention. And when his fellow prisoners began to go through that, the dead man's meager remaining possessions, they found a Bible. True story. They found a Bible, and they began to look at it and see his notes that were in it. And they began to pass it around to one another, wondering, is, is something, does, does something in here explain what this man did, why he was willing to lay down his life for another? And they began to pass the Bible around, and they began to read the Bible one to another. They began to study the Bible together. And God started changing hearts. And in that year, revival, legitimate revival, broke out in a POW camp. Souls were saved. Lives were changed. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's why today's big idea is this, that Jesus will be magnified when we watch our step. Jesus will be magnified when we watch our step, living in joyful, radical obedience to Him. Father, the, the prayer of my heart, Lord, and I know it's, it's really from you because I would never have thought of it myself. And, and it's a prayer we've shared, some of us here in the church over the last couple of months, Lord, is that we would come out of this, our own season of trial, Lord, that not, not resolve to simply go back to normal, but to come out of this season changed, having grown in the Lord, having begun to flourish. Father, willing to forsake our, our selfishness, willing to renounce, when necessary, personal comfort for the sake of showing mercy walking with Jesus. Father, I really think that this is an opportunity. I don't know when it's going to end as we began by praying here a little bit ago. We hope it's soon. And, and we are praying, Lord, how long. But, but Father, we, this is an opportunity for each one of us to a man, a woman, a young person to decide, am I going to keep living in partial obedience? Is Jesus going to be a casual traveling companion in my life? Or Am I going to aim for radical obedience? Am I going to make it clear that, that my job is not what defines me? That my friendships are not what define me? That, that my home and, and my accolades are not what define me? That, that my children, my grandchildren are not what define me? Many of those things matter, but we're called to live for Jesus. And you tell us when we seek you first in your kingdom, all that other stuff somehow gets taken care of. Father, I plead with you today to, to keep pushing us away from, from partial commitment, from giving Jesus a nod and a glance one Sunday and, and paying you no mind until the next. Father, I didn't ask for these words to be found in the scriptures, but that you, they're what you put in front of us, and, and it means... You want us to listen. Father, take us where we are weak. Bind us up and make us strong. Where we are astray, bring us back to the path of obedience. Father, where we're strong, keep us humble. And Father, help us to walk in ever more radical obedience to you and mercy toward each other. Father, we don't know what one act of mercy might do. We don't know what 
one act of kindness might change, but we can look at Jesus' example and see that's just what he did as he walked from place to place. An act of mercy at a time. Lord, one act of mercy toward one person will often change an entire family, even a, even a whole village. So, Father, who knows what you might do with, with the opportunities to show mercy that you give us. Father, help us is my prayer. Please, Father, help. Lord, I ask that you take the things of, of truth that have been spoken here this morning and seal them up in our hearts. Take the things that are irrelevant, that are wrong, that don't matter, and let them be forgotten so we leave with eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus alone. It's in his name we ask all of this, we pray. Amen.